Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right. No, no, no. It's not the end of the world. Calm yourselves, doomsday preppers, YouTubers, and other people who feed off such things. It's the opposite. The reason that we're doing this particular segment of today's show is because we are, when I say we, I mean other people besides me, are in the process of making sure the world doesn't end uh, with a a strike from a near-Earth object. You know, it's sort of like uh, what Charles Dudley Warner a Hartford guy, said, um, you know, back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, he said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, everybody talks about near-Earth objects, about asteroids, about comets, about things that could smash into Earth, things which have smashed into Earth, particularly 65, 66 million years ago, uh, an asteroid struck the planet. Uh, It gets blamed for the the end of the dinosaurs, although, in fact, some recent paleontology indicates that the dinosaurs were in the process of dying out anyway, just like the the coup de grace was the asteroid. Um, it, it seems actually the climate change may have been, well, I don't know why I think that's funny. It may be what's killing the dinosaurs, what was killing the dinosaurs. Later in the show, we'll talk about uh, other somewhat more lighthearted uh, subjects. Um, uh, baseball's uh, unbelievable and, and kind of unprecedented Shohei Otani, uh, who's just doing things that nobody, including Babe Ruth, has ever done. Uh, and we'll also talk about sharks. Sharks actually have a place in the ecosystem. They're facing extinction. They need a rebrand. It's going to take more than baby shark just to save them. But let's talk now about this uh, fascinating project, uh, a project that represents an attempt, in fact, as I said, to do something about a thing that occasionally, particularly when we're at the movies, we wind up uh, being worried about. Uh, And here to explain more about it is Andrew Rivkin, a planetary astronomer uh, and the uh, DART investigation team lead at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics University. Uh, The term DART is an acronym for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, uh, and it is what what we are here to talk about. So, Andrew Rivkin, welcome to our show. Thank you, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, it is kind of true that people talk about this stuff all the time, but nobody has ever been able to figure out what to do about it except on movie screens. But this really will represent when it launches, uh, I believe, in November, probably in November. That's the window. And and then maybe about 10 months later makes a contact. And we'll talk about what that contact uh, involves. This is an attempt to do something about that problem. So tell us more about the purpose of DART. 
Sure. So um, as, as you said, people have been thinking about, you know, what happens if, uh, if an asteroid is, is incoming, um, at least an asteroid that's large enough to worry about. Things hit the Earth all the time, like literally all the time. If you go out to, uh, on, on a clear night, you see shooting stars. Those are little tiny bits of asteroids and comets hitting the Earth, maybe only sand grain size. Um, and we hit, get hit by things that are, you know, chair to couch size, you know, a couple times a year. It's, it's as the things get bigger and bigger uh, that we start to worry about them more. Uh, the really large objects, um, and by large, I mean a few miles across, uh, are the sorts of things that people have thought we might need to use some sort of nuclear device, maybe kind of like what you see in, in the movies, although doing it differently. Um, and people are uncomfortable with the idea of, of using, of having that be kind of our only, our only choice, either that or, or sit back. Uh, so the DART mission is uh, going to demonstrate a, a different approach, which is very simple to understand. We take our spacecraft and we ram it into an asteroid. Um, and then you use the, the momentum of the spacecraft to change the orbit of the incoming asteroid uh, just a little bit, but enough to, uh, to have it miss the Earth. Um, as, as you said, you know, this is a test. The T in DART is for test. Uh, so there's nothing dangerous is going on. We're not actually avoiding uh, doomsday with this, uh, with this test. Uh, but we do want to make sure that uh, if we do want to try this out sometime uh, for real, that we know how it'll work. Right. It seems like common sense to not have the test happen when we're already being menaced. So as you say, these these asteroids, they either pass very near Earth. You know, there was one when maybe last year, I think it was about the size of a car. Um, and, and it was pretty came pretty close to Earth, too. But usually they're going to burn up in the atmosphere. We're talking about something you know considerably bigger uh, than that. But tell us, it's sort of interesting what so so DART is going to, I mean, the other word in the title helps you understand redirection. It's going to bump into something and redirect it. Uh, with, it's going to be a kinetic impactor, to use your terms. Uh, and tell us what, what we're going after. We're actually going after not exactly an asteroid, as I understand it, but a so-called moonlet uh, of an asteroid. Yeah, that's right. Uh, something like 10 to 15 percent of asteroids uh, actually have moons. And... So um, asteroids go around the sun at something like 20 miles a second. Um, and the, the folks that do the math um, have, are, are pretty convinced that if we do give an asteroid a shove to, to move it out of the way, you know, uh, when the Earth is coming, coming through, uh, that we only want to change the speed by something like less than an inch per second. Um, so that's very hard to measure if you've got something moving 20 miles a second and you, you give it a little shove and now you need to measure, you know, 20 miles plus a fraction of an inch. Um, so by going and doing this test on the moon of an asteroid, uh, that's going to be much easier to measure because asteroid moons go around, instead of going around the sun at 20 miles a second, they go around their main asteroid at maybe, you know, a foot per second, uh, so maybe, maybe a couple feet per second. So it's a much easier test to measure. So as an earthbound dumb guy just reading about this, I, when I read about it, I thought, 
why this seems like kind of small <laughs> like a thing i think it seems like it might be an easy thing to miss it's it's a small enough target uh, i'm sort of wondering you know does is that a concern anyway you've got something that's first of all revolving around something else and it's not very big are you, and and i guess what happens as it gets near is you make it autonomous it's not some guy with a joystick here on earth right the 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 machine itself goes and finds the moonlet yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the moon uh, itself is something like 150 yards across. So it's about the size of one of the pyramids of Giza. Um, it's big enough that it would, um, we'd notice it for sure on Earth if it hit, you know, the, mm-hmm. that uh, area, that region would certainly notice. Uh, but it's going to be the smallest object visited by a spacecraft. Um, and as you said, one of, one of the parts of the test is not just what we how the moon, or how the, the asteroid, which uh, is named Dimorphos, uh, how Dimorphos reacts uh, when we hit it, um, but the technologies that are required to make it happen. So one of them is, is as you said, we have the an, an, uh, algorithm an, an autonomy uh, that takes images from the camera. It says, okay, now I need to move slightly this way or I need to turn a little bit um, and brings us in uh, over the last hour because we're moving way too fast like you said, to sit there with a with a joystick and uh, and come in, and and I, I threw out some dates there, but uh, you you know the real dates. There's sort of a window that starts around Thanksgiving for launch, uh, and, and then talk about how long it takes to get there and and find its target. Yeah, we uh, the launch window, as you say, uh, opens at about Thanksgiving, um, and we all all intentions and all expectations are that we will launch, you know, within the first day or two of that window. But the launch window is very long. So if something happens, um, we, we do have a, a, a good, good long time to launch. The arrival date is set more or less. It's going to be end of September 2022, beginning of October 2022, within a few days, uh, regardless of when we launch. So we're only going to be, uh, the spacecraft is only going to be in space for, you know, un- under a year. Um, the, the objects, uh, Dimorphos and Didymos, which is the main body it's orbiting, are small enough that uh, the spacecraft won't be able to detect it with their cameras until about a month out. Um, but as it gets closer and closer, um, it'll get brighter and brighter. Um, and then kind of within the last few days is when, when a lot of the action happens. And then, of course, really the action happens in just the last, uh, last hour to a few minutes when when Dimorphos itself becomes big enough to see as more than one pixel um, and then looms in the camera. Uh, we're we're going to have uh, pictures returned up until the moment that that it crashes. So we should get some some great pictures, but they'll only be in those last last few minutes there. So uh, I, this may be a pointless question, but I'll ask it anyway. It seems to me that the ethos of any launch like this and anything with this kind of complexity is what could go wrong. Is there anything that you're in particular worried about? I mean, maybe that there's uh, uh, properties uh, at the asteroid and its moonlit that you're just not aware of that create kind of, I mean, are, are there sort of X factors, things you think, well, you know, that would surprise us in a very unpleasant way? Sure. I think, um, you know, we are trying to also take the attitude that this, this is an experiment. This is a test. Um, and certainly if we are surprised by something, we want to we want to do the test now. Um, we we 
so so posing it like that rather than than things that would be problems things that would be interesting um <laughs> you know um the uh we we don't know the surface properties um super well mm. so we're not sure if we're going to hit something that is more the consistency of a beach you know kind of sand and and uh loose loose gravel and stuff or if we're going to hit something that's more like a, a solid rock and uh or at least a solid rock um compared to the size of the spacecraft so um depending on what the what we actually what the surface is like um that will have big um big consequences for uh for the um for the results either it'll it'll will kick up a lot of debris and the debris will move very fast and that'll give an extra push to the morphos um or it's going to be um more like you know you have two ice skaters and one kind of skates up and just grabs the other one and they just kind of have their combined momentum without a lot of extra extra stuff going on um so like hockey i, I think those yeah, yeah, yeah. We should check someone. Uh, I don't know if checking them into the boards is quite right, but I don't know. The Stanley Cup is going on now, so um, the uh, you know the technologies that we are testing, uh, we're we're confident in. Um, but again, those two are are being tested as as part of this experiment. Uh, we have new solar arrays. We have uh, new technology on the solar arrays. Uh, there's a uh, an ion engine, a new a new type of ion engine that we're flying. Um, all of these technologies may or may not behave up to spec. Uh, we have no reason to think they won't. And also, we are uh, trying to make sure that no one um, unexpected result will will result in in a in a, a problem. Um, but uh, you know, we are we are testing a lot of things. Um, and then we'll take the results of those tests and uh, and go forward from there. The, so it, it does have these kind of solar wings, uh, but the unit itself, I may be the 900th person to say this, it looks kind of like a furnace. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's, I, it doesn't look aerodynamic. It's this big square, you know, blocky kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, the, well, the, um, yeah, the comparison that we used to use, which is not very, not very, you know, space travel romantic, was that it was kind of like a washing machine. We've now kind of moved to thinking of it more like a vending machine, which is <laughs> no, not necessarily any more romantic. Um, but um, yeah, in space, you don't have to be uh, aerodynamic, right. you might, uh, might guess. Um, so really, it's a matter of what, um, what kind of spacecraft forms have flown before, what do we know and, and can rely on, uh, what do people have experience with, and... Um, so at least for the main the main structure of the spacecraft, uh, that's that's kind of tried and true. Um, I guess I'll, I'll also note there is one other interesting uh, technology that's being tested. Uh, we're carrying a CubeSat, which is being built by the Italian Space Agency, and so this is about the size of a cereal box. Uh, we jettison that uh, or deploy it, I suppose, is maybe a, a better way to put it. Um, <laughs> about a week ahead of time. And then that will be taking pictures of what we do uh, and sending those to earth. So, um, it's sort we'll, of, a, we'll have it's some, like a, it's like a selfie stick basically. Uh, it, it, is, it is, you know, for, for a little while we were calling it selfie fat on, uh, you know, unofficially. Um, and yeah, it should take pictures of, of what we do of the debris cloud we, we make and then, uh, turn around and get a picture of the other side of the morphos that we don't get to see. So in an ideal world, and I mean world quite literally, I guess in this case, in an ideal world, you've got, what, 10, 20 years 
knowing some big ass thing is coming towards Earth. Uh, and you've got quite a bit of time, right? I mean, in an ideal world, we would have systems like this in place uh, and we'd have plenty of time to deploy. I mean, it wouldn't even be the kind of window you're dealing with now. Yes. Um, you know, there is a national strategy for planetary defense. NASA has been tasked with looking into things, including finding 90% um, of the asteroids that are dimorphosized or larger. Um, and so there are people that have been working on that problem using telescopes on the ground. There's a, a satellite that um, is moving forward um, and uh, called uh, NEO Surveyor, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, we, we are hoping will launch sometime in the next several years that will, that will do the job of finding stuff early. And if we find stuff early enough, like you said, maybe it'll even be 30 years, maybe it'll even be 40 years, uh, then you do have plenty of time. And that's why giving it just this, this small nudge of, you know, less than an inch per, per second gives it plenty of time to, to miss the Earth. Um, it's the, the things that we don't find too far ahead of time uh, that you have to give much bigger shoves to that, are, that, that uh, we think would require the, the more drastic uh, sorts of things. But in an ideal world, yeah, we, we find things early and then we uh, take care of them in plenty of time so no one needs to, you know, no one needs to, to lose too much sleep over them. I want to just, uh, issue a little clarification about something you said a few minutes ago. You said that it looked a little bit like a vending machine. Jeff Bezos does have a plan to put vending machines on the moon. This has no connection to that whatsoever, <laughs> right? But eventually no when you connection. go up there, you'll have to, like, have, you know, your... Amazon Prime thing, and you'll have to get them, uh, get the Twinkie out of the machine. So, um, a little bit more about this. Um, you know, once again, so much of our our thinking about this is unfortunately conditioned by watching disaster movies, and in disaster movies, pretty typically, uh, they try to blow the thing up because it's just better better cinema. Um, talk about the disadvantages of trying to blow something up versus redirecting it. Sure. Yeah, we. Um, as, as a community, you know, planetary defense, you go to the meetings, you talk about things. Um, the, the general, the conventional wisdom is you don't want to disperse something unless you have no other choice. That really it's better to just move something because you can keep track of all the pieces a lot better. And, um, you know, I guess I will mention one of the movies, Deep Impact, uh, if I remember right. Uh, you know, they kind of, they split it in the course of, you know, trying to, trying to wreck it. And uh, one piece ended up hitting the earth. And so um, really it's the, the, the general consensus is, especially if you have plenty of time, especially if, if you've got uh, you know, the means to do it, to just give a little push and keep the whole thing together, then you still just have one thing to keep track of uh, and you know where it is instead of maybe having you know, 50 pieces or 30 pieces and maybe one of them is still big enough to give you, uh, give you a bad day and uh, trying to, trying to keep track of where everything is and where everything is going. Right. You're, you're quite correct. Although Deep Impact, we should emphasize, is a comet, not an asteroid. In fact, let's just hear, yes. the, let's hear the president of the United States uh, discussing that. That's A1, Cat. Now, we get hit all the time by rocks and meteors, some of them the size of cars, some no bigger than your hand. But the comet we discovered is the size of New York City, from the north side of Central Park to the Battery, about seven miles long. So for the past eight months, the United States and Russia have been building the largest spaceship ever constructed. It's being built in orbit around the Earth, and we call it the Messiah. 
Right now, a team of American astronauts and one Russian are at Cape Canaveral in Florida. In two months, they will leave on the shuttle Atlantis to board the Messiah. This is the crew that will stop the comet. Yeah, except it doesn't because it goes into too many pieces. Um, and and so, and thank you for calling it Dart instead of the Messiah because it's a much more manageable name, I think, somehow, and a little less uh, alarming somehow. Now, you know, not to not to harp on the possibility that it won't work, but if it does, if if this doesn't work, if you don't see the kind of redirection, the appropriate amount of movement by the moonlet uh, of Dimorphos. Um, does that mean you try to redirect again, or does do we sort of go back into meetings and say, well, maybe we should think and be thinking about this uh, a different way? I mean, it's not just redirect or blow up. There are a whole bunch of different ideas that get floated around. Sure, sure. Um, the um, to, at, at some at some level, um, you know, redirection. If redirection doesn't work. Um, presumably there's we would have to figure out why that would be i mean the the physics behind it it would be like if you try to push someone on a swing and they don't go anywhere <laughs> there would have to be something going on that would just be you know that that we would have to figure out hmm. so um it, it probably would not um invalidate the idea of redirection or the kinetic impactor as as a, a plan um other ideas, as you said, have been brought up um, and might be more appropriate in some circumstances. There's there's one called uh, the gravity tractor uh, that we think might also be mature enough to use right now. But basically, it uh, also depends on fundamental physics um, that all masses uh, gravitationally attract one another. The idea would be you make a big, massive spacecraft, you put it next to the object you want to change, whose orbit you want to change, and you use the mass of your spacecraft to tug on the asteroid itself, and then you move your spacecraft to grab to, to um, gravitationally drag the, the asteroid where you want. Um, that one would take a, a very long time, we think. Uh, so that also needs a very long lead time. Um, some of the other things people have been talking about are, you know, you you put uh, a spacecraft with a powerful laser um, ne- near the object you want to move, and you you know, hit the hit the surface of the asteroid with this powerful laser and you melt and vaporize part of the surface. And then that acts as um, basically a little a little rocket. And you use the the exhaust that comes from from melting and vaporizing that part of the asteroid to move the asteroid. Uh, As you might imagine, that would take a tremendous amount of energy. And so um, I I don't know how that would be a a technological problem to solve. Um, And people are always coming up with new ideas. Um, the, the kinetic impactor has the benefit of being really simple, really simple to understand. You don't need to rendezvous. You don't need to, uh, have, have a complicated, very long operations period. Um, but again, there may be situations where, you know, it's good to have more, more tools, uh, than just one. So you're, you're not left, uh, you know, trying to use your Phillips, Phillips screw driver for, uh, things it wasn't intended for. Right. We're just drinking screwdrivers to have the whole thing kind of go away. <laughs> so let me just end here with asking you a question that's 
policy-wise and philosophically, maybe a little bit above your theoretical pay grade, but I think it's an important one to ask, which is that, once again, if we think about the movies, yeah, ultimately the entire world mobilizes. This isn't a specific problem to anybody else. You know, it, it's to everybody. Uh, I don't know, having just lived through the pandemic where there actually wound up being a politics of, of, of viral transmission and, and we don't really seem to be working together as a planet and uh, certain continents are completely underserved by vaccines. I get a little pessimistic. But you know what? In terms of whatever meetings you go to, whatever discussions you participate in, do you get the sense that ultimately this would be something with a global purpose where, you know, we all, the whole planet worked together? That's a great question. Um, there are, as you allude, I mean, there are meetings uh, every few years where, where folks who are interested in the problem get together and discuss it. Uh, and there are, for lack of a better term, you know, role, role-playing exercises. Uh, role-playing games where um, you know they'll say, okay, you know, as of as of this last update, there's something, and we think it's heading somewhere for Southeast Asia, and here's the here's the the map of affected areas, and and the the people playing world leaders trying to decide what to do. Um, there are um, there are you know in 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 policy terms, there are UN commissions that are set up. The countries of the world are are talking to each other about this topic and trying to trying to understand what what the best ways to go forward would be. Uh, there are legal issues, you know, uh, and in terms of um, you know if if you if you try something and you screw it up, you know, are you on the hook for for insurance purposes? Um, so there there are people aware of these issues and and talking at the right levels. Um, I, I do think personally that if um, if there were going to be a problem that that uh, that people would would get it together, um, uh, certainly if it were at a global scale, um, and and I also think if it were at a smaller scale, I think if if something were were coming into a to a nation or an area that doesn't have a whole lot of spacefaring nations, uh, I, I do feel like the the countries that do have the capability to to deflect an asteroid or break things better would step up, um, but that is that is maybe just a just a you know a personal belief rather than uh, than set in stone. Right. Well, so for now we've got NASA and we've got the DART team, uh, and all you really have to do, Andrew Rivkin, is to save the entire human race and probably the planet as well. Uh, well I've- I've got a lot of help and a lot of team, a lot of folks on the team. I'm just yeah. a member of the team, and we're doing our best. All right. Uh, Andrew Rifkin is planetary astronomer and uh, the DART investigation team lead at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thank you. Asteroids are made of rock and metal, too. They can hit Earth, and that's an issue, but we're okay. Tell your friend after I belt we find them But I hope one never hits us again You know they break apart Move by gravity someone near so far And for these close calls Now I'm looking quickly in the most Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So when we talk about sports on this particular show, we try to talk about it in a way in a way that will not drive away people who are not sports inclined. So trust us on that. We're going to talk about a very, very remarkable uh, player right now. But I just also want to say, if you're listening live on Tuesday, I mean, you've got some Wimbledon going on. You've got some Euro and Copa America soccer football going on. You've got the Match 4, which is not really sports. Uh, you've got the NBA Finals starting tonight, uh, putting together the two teams who, which in 1969 flipped a coin for the rights to Lou Elsend or soon-to-be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, and you may see my column about Connie Hawkins floating around on uh, Hearst newspaper sites. But we're not even going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about a player that's who is remarkable, maybe the most physically talented person ever to play baseball. Uh, and one person who will say that is our guest right now. Uh, coming back to us uh, is Ben Lindbergh, who's been a frequent guest with us, staff writer at The Ringer and co-host of the Fangraphs baseball podcast, Effectively Wild. Welcome back, Ben Lindbergh. Hey, Colin. Good to be back. So yeah, you've actually written that a possible good use of Ben Lindbergh would basically be to embed him on uh, a Shohei Otani beat because he's just so much uh, of what's a remarkable story in baseball. Make the case. Make the case that this is uh, a once a century and maybe even rarer talent than that. Yeah, Shohei Otani is about as close as a superhero <laughs> as a baseball player can be. And I think he is uniquely positioned to be kind of a, a crossover figure who is of interest to mainstream audiences who might not even think they care about baseball. Otani plays for the Angels, and he is both a hitter and a pitcher. And this is extremely rare. It's called a two-way player. And these days, players tend to be specialized and pitchers who still hit in the National League where there's no designated hitter tend to be very, very bad at it because they don't really practice it. They aren't really selected for it. They're there to pitch. And so it's almost unheard of for anyone to hit and pitch at a high level now. Now, in the early days of baseball, it was much more common when the caliber of competition was a lot lower. And so you had players like Babe Ruth, who for a time was an accomplished two-way player. In the Negro Leagues, you had players like Bullet Rogan, who were great two-way players, but we're talking a century or close to a century ago. And really, since then, there hasn't been anyone who has done it as regularly or at as high a level as Shohei Otani, who is leading the major leagues in home runs as we speak. And he is also tonight's scheduled starting pitcher for the Angels, which just makes my mind boggle. I almost giggle every time I think of it. So he has been the most valuable player in the American League this year, according to the value metrics that are published at both Baseball Reference and Fangraphs, two of the leading baseball stat sites. So he has been great, and he has done it in a completely unique and compelling and watchable way. 
Right. So for people who aren't baseball fans, I mean, you know, as Ben is saying, for a pitcher to be any good at all at hitting, maybe squeeze out a double once in a while or get a lucky home run. You know, I mean, the reason that half of baseball has a designated hitter is because pitchers are so bad at hitting that nobody wants to watch them do it. So, I mean, here you've got a guy who's made the all-star team both as a pitcher and a hitter. Uh, uh, unheard of, first person ever to do that. I mean, you're much better with stats than I am. But one that jumps out to me is he's leading the major re- league in home runs, as you said. He's also there's they now measure who who has the most effective pitch, and batters are hitting zero point eight three against uh, uh, against this guy's split fingered fastball, which makes it apparently the toughest pitch to hit in baseball right now. Yes, yes, it is. It's a, a very pretty pitch. It's uh, it moves in an interesting way, and batters just can't seem to touch it. And yes, he he ranks close to the top of of virtually everything. You know, almost every leaderboard you could find because he is both one of the best hitters and one of the best bat- pitchers. And you know, he has power, as we noted. He has thirty one home runs, and and he's basically halfway through his season right now. Just a little bit more than that. He's also leading the American League in triples, which is a, a type of hit that is more dependent on speed. He has 12 stolen bases in 15 attempts and he has four bunt hits, you know, so (laughs) he does it all really. There have been a a number of games this year where he has hit some Titanic home run and also bunted for a hit and, and beat it out because he is one of the fastest players in baseball as well. So he really is almost the perfect baseball being in a way. And and that sounds very hyperbolic, but it's also, it's almost impossible to be hyperbolic when talking about Shohei Otani. And that's sort of unusual, I think, for a baseball player, because there is a perception, a reputation, and perhaps it's a bad rap that baseball players are a little less athletic. You know, people tend to think of John Cruck, for instance, or or some of the beefier (laughs) sluggers, you know, who, look, baseball players, uh, they come in a lot of builds and body types. And there are, of course, many athletic baseball players. But Shohei Otani, I think, has a legitimate case as one of the best athletes in the world, really, in any sport, which is very unusual for a baseball player in that he has an incredible arm, he can hit the ball as far as anyone and as hard as anyone, and he can also run about as fast as anyone. So he is just basically breaking the mold almost every time out, and it's been a wonder to watch. You know, the the other thing that kind of piles on top of this, too, is that when you see him, first of all, he's the face of about a 12 or 13-year-old kid. He has this kind of very innocent-looking boyish face, if you knew any kids that age who are six foot five. Um, you know, and he kind of has this smile on his face most of the time. I don't think it's sort of a fake smile either. I think it's the smile of somebody really sort of enjoys leading off second or whatever he's doing at that particular moment. He, he seems, you know, just sort of delighted to be there and doing all this stuff. Right. Yeah. And, you know, of course, it it can be difficult or or dangerous to feel like, you know, someone from afar or that watching them, just the little snippets that we see, the glimpses we get on the field or in the dugout, who knows what uh, what people are really like. But from all accounts, Otani is a a pretty delightful person to be around. And certainly he gives off an infectious energy. You know, he really seems to be having fun out there, to use the old cliche. And, And he has said as much that baseball is just fun for him that it doesn't feel like a pressure or you know some some harsh ordeal he really seems to enjoy it and i guess it's easy to understand why given that he is so good at everything he hasn't had to struggle much except with injuries in some recent seasons but that is part of his appeal yes is that 
despite being incredibly talented, he is not, you know, the stereotype of the ultra competitive, aggressive jock or the guy who's just glowering in the dugout or is some sort of efficient robot. He is always smiling. He is always laughing. He seems to get along great with his teammates. People who've covered him seem to only have nice things to say. So he has this very squeaky clean image in addition to the talent that he has and the stats he's putting up. So it's really the total package. Although we may we may see that put to the test tonight, Ben, because last night uh, Otani grounded out to end the game. And it is it has been speculated or maybe even said that the pitcher who got him out, Adam uh, Odovino, uh, it was his birth. It was uh, Otani's birth, twenty seventh birthday right. yesterday. And and the pitcher who got him out may have yelled, pardon the bad word here, happy birthday, bitch, uh, <laughs> which you typically don't do against somebody, particularly who's going to be throwing baseballs at your teammates <laughs> uh, at a hundred miles an hour the next day. I mean, typically the response to that would be at minimum some, as they say, high and tight pitches. Yeah, you'd think, especially because it's not as if uh, Otani is one of these players who tends to provoke opponents by, you know, having ostentatious spat flips or or jawing at them or anything. It, it seems like he is uh, quite polite and, and humble most of the time from what we can tell. So that was odd and not really something that we've seen before, if that is in fact what he said. And sort of strange timing because it, it wasn't a great outing by Otani. You know, he almost blew the game and Otani hit the ball quite hard at him and Otani was... Uh, kind of bailed out by his defense in that case. But if that was the case, that is really the outlier because one of the pleasures of following Otani this season has been reading the quotes, seeing the interviews, not just with his teammates who marvel at him constantly, but with opposing players who seem to be as engaged with the story as fans, as media members. They are in awe of what he is accomplishing, which I think makes sense because they know better than anyone how hard it is to do all of the things he does at such a high level. And so to them, I think it's even more impressive you know, when pitchers face him and they see that he hits as well as, as any batter they face, and yet he's also probably a better pitcher than they are. It seems as if, you know, I, I guess maybe that could uh, hurt some egos, ruffle some feathers, but for the most part, it seems as if players are excited and even all-stars, you know, and, and players who will be participating in the Home Run Derby and the All-Star Game, which are coming up next week and are all set up to be a national showcase for Otani. A lot of them have talked about how excited they are to see him hit, to see him pitch, to play with him, to be on his team. So there is really kind of an aura that he is giving off now where everyone wants to be watching him or or be around him. Yes, the Red Sox manager, Alex Cora, was you know unambiguous about the fact that he's the best player in the game right now. And that word awe comes up a lot, too. Just to give people kind of a little sense, uh, let's go back in time to April 4th of this year, opening weekend, uh, ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, you're going to hear what it sounded like. You're going to hear the announcers, including Alex Rodriguez, talk about what it's like to see Otani pitch and hit. At the knees at 100 miles an hour. Got him. Oh, and first pitch crushing. Oh, man. Lean into it. Oh, man. I mean, that ball was crushed. Wow. That was ridiculous. He has thrown the fastest pitch this opening weekend. And he has the hardest hit by any player this opening weekend. 
I mean, Ben, yeah, we could spend all day uh, talking about all the sort of the never before things uh, that that have happened. And you've already kind of alluded to this. But I mean, the, the, the player who would come to mind for anybody with even a general familiarity with baseball was Babe Ruth. Most people know that Babe Ruth kind of came on the scene as a pitcher, then he turned out to be a much better hitter. But Babe Ruth never did any of this kind of stuff, right? He did it, you know, you could say maybe uh, not quite at the same time. There was actually a pretty brief period where Babe Ruth really overlapped as both a hitter and a pitcher. You know, he started out as a very good pitcher who hit occasionally and then eventually morphed into the best hitter who very rarely pitched, almost never pitched. And so there was a, a brief window where he was doing both. But even when he was doing both, he wasn't pitching at quite the same level. It, it seemed like hitting as often as he was and playing in the field seemed to take something out of his pitching. So really, you can't find a, a single season where Babe Ruth was performing at this level at all facets of the game. So, you know, mm -hmm. he is the best comp, at least when it comes to the white major leagues. But even that doesn't quite fit. And even to the extent that it does fit, it was more than 100 years ago and right. it was a completely different game. And so to do it now is, well, awe-inspiring, as we were saying. And so, you know, you heard the, the crack of the bat in that clip and it was so loud that there was some speculation that maybe ESPN had juiced the audio somehow that they had tried to make it more resonant. And I think I saw a producer said, nope, that was just the way it sounded. He does hit the ball as hard as anyone. And so the crack of the bat really does make a, a special sound when it is off of Otani's bat. So it's, I, I think, really fun to watch. But also there is a sense that this is so precious and so rare that we have to savor it while it lasts because no one really knows, you know, whether this is just the start of a, a run where he will be doing this for a while or whether this will be the, the one special season where it all came together because, again, the degree of difficulty is so high. And, you know, he did this in 2016 in Japan when he was just 21, 22, and he was the best pitcher in that league and maybe the second best hitter. And he was a sensation there and he won the home run derby and, and he went to the playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. So he did it all there in, you know, what is commonly regarded as the second highest level league in the world. But this is the highest level league in the world. And it's coming on the heels of a few seasons where Otani wasn't able to do both things at the same time. He had elbow surgery. He had knee surgery. He wasn't able to pitch for long stretches of time. And that hampered his hitting to some extent too. And so this is the first time really that we've seen him for this extended stretch in the States, fully healthy, fully operational, and he is meeting or exceeding all expectations. So you just kind of have to cross your fingers and hope that he can hold up both his health and his energy level. And, you know, so much attention has been paid to how do you keep him on the field? You know, how much rest is it appropriate to give him? Will he wear down given this workload over the course of a season? And a lot of that is still a question mark, but they have really just taken all of the, the leashes off and, and loosened the reins and just let him go this year. And thus far, it has worked out as well as anyone could have hoped. Right. Uh, a couple of quick things here at the end. One reason that we know that thing about Babe Ruth is because Babe Ruth said it. He said it was too 
too hard uh, to right. pitch and, and play in the field at the same time he belonged in the outfield. Uh, last night, Otani broke a bat, but I mean, I watched this. The bat exploded. I, I've rarely seen a broken bat uh, be like that. He just hit, he swung so hard that the bat kind of exploded. Uh, and lastly, uh, the Twitter thing du jour is uh, Otani uh, playing in Tokyo, hitting kind of a moonshot home run that actually goes through the roof of a domed stadium. So every day there's something new. Ben Lindbergh is staff writer at The Ringer, co-host of the Fangraphs Baseball Podcast, Effectively Wild. Thank you for joining us. we got to take a break. we got to come back and save the Sharks. That went 459 feet. Shohei Otani, 31 home runs. Tying Hideki Matsui's all-time home run mark for a Japanese-born hitter in the major leagues. 31 home runs. Shohei Otani, 459 center field. Number 31. Shohei. Wow. I got to do this real fast because I screwed up the clock. Cat Pastors, our technical producer, the producer of this particular episode is Jonathan McPants. Uh, when we talk about sharks, uh, when we think about sharks, well, kind of, Cat, here's how we think about sharks. Mr. Vaughn, what we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks. And that's all. Now, why don't you take a long, close look at this sign? Those proportions are correct. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. Well, it's unfortunate. Joining us right now is Melissa Cristina Marquez, uh, a marine biologist and shark scientist. She has just published a piece at Salon.com called Sharks Have an Image Problem and Are on the Verge of Extinction. Um, So, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, that's the image. And there's been so many movies since then that kind of repeat that image. Uh, In fact, uh, it makes more sense, as you say, uh, to be afraid for sharks than to be afraid of sharks. Uh, Sharks uh, kill like something like 13 people a year. How many people, how many sharks do we kill every year? Uh, The the estimates are millions. (laughs) Yeah. Or, or, or yes, I mean, like, like big, big estimates of millions, maybe even 100 million sharks uh, a year, which is just crazy. Um, so make the case that sharks, first of all, there's all kinds of different sharks. The, num- the, the kinds of sharks that might bite you are you know, very much in the minority. They're tiny little sharks. Make the case for their role in the ecosystems. If, in fact, we hunt and fish them to extinction, what gets lost? our way of living. I mean, if you like life, you need to like sharks. Um, they, they're one of the ones that really kind of piece the ocean together and make sure everything runs smoothly. So you take that really important puzzle piece out of this machine that we call life. You're looking at a bad time. And is the bad time, I mean, they're sort of an apex predator. So are they sort of eating things that would eat other things that would ultimately kind of wreck the diversity of the ocean? Is that, would that be a way to describe their role? Yeah, definitely. I mean, their mere presence alters how a habitat or how an environment actually asks. So, you know, we're not the only ones that are afraid of sharks. Fish are also afraid of sharks, mostly because, you know, sharks eat fish. So when a shark is patrolling around a coral reef, fish will actually leave that area for a little bit or however long the shark is uh, and allow for 
plants such as algae to actually grow and help sustain that part of the habitat as well. So, I mean, you take out sharks, you're taking out the very existence of some animals. So, yeah, and I think the other irony here is that our desire to catch and eat fish and to be able to have them as a kind of a mass market product is one of the reasons, maybe the main reason, that sharks are teetering on the verge of extinction, right? They're essentially yeah. being overfished. Yeah, so that that is the biggest threat that sharks fish is essentially our greed, our want for tons of seafood without being able to sustainably harvest it. So for this to change, people would have to start caring about sharks and it would have to be not cool to have sharks be the kind of collateral damage that they currently are uh, of the seafood industry. First of all, is there any any hope that a future generation of adults who grew up singing the baby shark song are going to feel differently about sharks? Oh, I really hope so, because that's such a catchy song. (laughs) But, but really, one of the things that you argue in your piece is there's got to be kind of a rebranding of sharks. We've got to think about them as something other than this animal that's trying to kill Blake Lively. Exactly. And, and that is one of the things that I hope through education um, and just talking to people about the sharks, about being like, look, there's over 500 different species. The minority of them, very, very small minority, pose some sort of danger to humans. Uh, so getting them to care about sharks overall, being like, oh, actually, some of them are really cute. Um, I think is a great way of slowly taking a step in the right direction of being like, right, we can coexist with these animals because that's eventually what we need to get to is coexisting with these animals on our planet. Are there specific ideas about how commercial fishing would have to change in order to stop accidentally destroying so many sharks? Yeah, you know, I think there... There's tons of policies and whatnot being put in place to uh, more sustainably fish what we've got out there. Uh, but something that consumers and like the listeners right now uh, that are tuning in can actually do is if you eat seafood, download a sustainable seafood app because that'll let you know whether you what you are putting on your plate is something that is sustainably caught. And if it's sustainably caught, that means it's actually helping sharks. That's really, that, that's really, really good advice. I don't know if you go to Whole Foods, they've got like different colors and steps and stuff like that, but really- Exactly like that, yeah. But you're saying an app on your phone would be even better. Yeah, so here in the United States, um, the Seafood Watch app from Monterey Bay Aquarium is actually probably the most popular one. That really just is very easy to read. It lets you know, all right, maybe don't eat these fish, try these fish instead. Yes, these are sustainable. Go ahead and have these. Uh, it, it's really simple, really quick to download, and it's free. My suggestion, you need a celebrity to be attached to this project. And I think Richard Dreyfuss would be perfect, you know, if he started making, you know, public (laughs) service announcements saying, you know, I kind of had it wrong about sharks. Uh, They're really, really great for the most part. They're not just eating machines. Melissa Cristina Marquez is a marine biologist and shark scientist. She just published a piece at Salon, which we recommend to you, called Sharks Have an Image Problem and Are on the Verge of Extinction. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, And thanks to uh, to you so much for listening. Uh, And thanks to Jonathan for producing and Kat uh, for technically producing. And we actually made it somehow. (laughs) I think we actually did justice to the sharks, which I was kind of worried about because the the clock was ticking. Thanks for listening today. And, And thanks for, you know, I know some of you aren't sports fans, but we would really like to occasionally tell some sports stories that we think are would be interesting to a person who didn't care about sports. We might be even be doing a little bit more of that in the immediate future. So, so bear with us on that. And yeah, if you can track down the piece that I wrote about Connie Hawkins, uh, it's in most Hearst newspapers and it's all over Twitter and Facebook right now. <laughs>